Hi, Frank. How are you? Nice to see you. Yeah. I just need to plug in my headphones. Hi, Victoria. Oh, it's so nice. We have a group together. Makes me happy. Thank you. <laughs> Hi, Z. Hi, Anna. Hi, Manas. How are you? Hey, hey, I just wanted to say hello. It's um, raining here in Western Mass just for a minute. So I'm really happy I'm outside taking photos and talking to the birds because um, we're in a severe drought. So every time we have rain here, we're just so happy. <laughs> but I wanted to say hi and just say thanks. And yeah, I love this. Um, I love your club and all the work you guys do. And yeah. It's, uh, I'm glad that I bounced in here. So thanks, Katerina, Frank, and Victoria, and welcome to everybody else. Oh, hi, Oza. Welcome to Clubhouse, and one of the best clubs on Clubhouse. I'm done speaking. Bye. Thanks, <laughs> You're always so nice. I really appreciate it. Can everyone hear me fine? I had, I, in between, I have the red bar. Absolutely fine. Okay. Crystal yeah, clear. That's so nice to hear, Z. Thank you. That's really nice. I think it will be a really interesting room. Let me put up uh, the organization website where our guest speaker works for. So in the meantime, we have something we can check out. Let me put up the link. I, I was thinking about the topics. What do you think? What topics should we set? Yeah, I think there's no option like evolution or something like that. It's just biology, science, and I I don't know. I can't think of, can you think of, they don't have too much available. Oh, by the way, I think uh, there's some leverage of this club to, um, to make Clubhouse add some things that we could use. So I think you could uh, ask, you know, Clubhouse to add something that you need. Yeah, we. I think Victoria tried it for us, but um, so far not very su successfully. Oh, I wanted to. Um, hi, Namanu. How are you? Uh, hi, hi. I'm. I'm great. I'm great. <laughs> Thanks for coming. Uh, yeah, you're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. No so it's on evolution and the evolution of form blood and animals. Yeah, um, yeah. I wanted to introduce you uh, to Frank, Victoria, Z, and everyone. I want to ask um, about science society and how you could help. So, um, you know, I said you can join uh, some rooms and then see how we do things, and then maybe suggest based on his backgrounds, you know, like topics, guest speakers, and so on. So, yeah, welcome. Yeah, yeah thank you. Uh, hi, Frank. Hi, Victoria. Hi, Zed. Nice meeting you. And uh, yeah, I'll just uh, be here and listen to the discussion. And uh, yeah, I will hope to you know, join you or propose some some rooms like uh, based on my background or something 
the cutting edge field of my in my field especially now. Yeah. So I'm here. Yeah, thank you. Uh, we will start in around five minutes. Um, our guest speaker will be here shortly. So um, in the meantime, please check out the um, organization uh, website, um, Paleo Moss. Um, it's um, uh, this organization promotes scientific development in Mozambique, uh, Africa, uh, through the preservation and enrichment of its paleontological heritage and um, yeah the um, FCTIA uh, which is the foundation for science and technology in Portugal uh, supports uh, this organization and our guest speaker Ricardo he is at the University of Lisbon but um, yeah he he works and does research for this um yeah for this organization so feel free to check it out in the meantime Obrigado. Hi Ricardo. Olá. Hello. How are Boa you? Tarde. Boa tarde. Oh good. <laughs> we are the only Portuguese speakers, but Victoria here, she almost Portuguese now, but she can speak right now. I'm sorry. She's in uh she's traveling, but she's here listening. <laughs> How are you? Sorry, uh, I didn't get it. You want me to speak in Portuguese or in English? No, no, in English because uh, it's just okay, us, okay. Um, uh, who's all right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, thank you for coming um, and thank you for taking time to to speak with us here today. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you for inviting me as well. So we will start in a couple of minutes and. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, are you currently in uh, Lisboa or where where are you currently located? Yes, I am uh, right now. I'm in, in Lisboa, in Marvila, right uh, next to the river, actually, uh, to the to the um, right next to the to the big bridge to uh, 25th April uh, Bridge. Oh, nice. It's pretty. That's beautiful. Yeah. I've, I've been there a couple of times. So it's it's my first time that I that I use Clubhouse. I'm not really familiar with how it works, but uh, I guess it's, it's kind of like a voice chat room, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, so okay. Let me, yeah, exactly. So you found the most important button, which is the the Mike. unmute button. <laughs> the unmute so, button. Yes. All right. 
<laughs> then there is um, a chat option. So all the way on the bottom on the left, there's like a speech bubble with a number six. So if you press mm -hmm. on that in the chat room, so there you can chat with everyone or people that are maybe in the noisy background also, they can comment and ask questions there instead of speak. Um, mm -hmm. and, and then uh, we have on the top here, I posted the link um, of um, the, the Paleomars. Oh, Paleomars, okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I will switch it awesome. uh, later to the paper uh, when we mm -hmm. start speaking. And right. um, so how it works if when people click on the, everyone, it's not like a screen share. so. When people click on the link, everyone has to do it themselves. So if you like refer to an image in the paper or something like that, it's really helpful to I see. say, you know, which which number, you know, table number, image number you're on. So mm -hmm. okay. Sounds good. Yeah. Th those are the most important, but there's a lot more, but I don't think, you know, for now you would need it or so. okay. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's two. Okay, we can we can slowly start. And uh, okay, I'm sorry, I was sharing. Okay, welcome everyone to Science Society, uh, and of course a special welcome to you, Ricardo. And before we start, let me give like a very brief um, introduction to the audience. Um, and, and then we'll go from there. So um, Ricardo Araujo, he's a paleontologist and the co-founder of the original Palm-Niasa project and is now the principal investigator of the Palio-Marsh project. And he did mm -hmm. his PhD at the Southern Methodist University in Angola, uh, Plesiosaurus and Sauropteri a functional yes. morphology and the Fulbright right. scholarship. <laughs> Sorry. He's, right. um, he's currently a researcher at the University of Lisbon in Portugal and um, he led several Palmiasa expeditions uh, and supervised trained um, a lot of students in Mozambique and um, he is all he also designed the paleontology laboratory and monitored its construction and setting up um yeah this uh lab that's really impressive uh so we are very honored having you here and uh before we start usually we ask a couple of interview questions if, if that's okay with you yeah sure thanks for the nice introduction by the way <laughs> yeah, thank you for being here. And uh, so we usually ask because we kind of think it's really interesting for people that are maybe not um, doing research or science. Like, what led you to choose science for as your path for your life? Like, was it something you always wanted to do? Was it some book, a teacher, some class? Yeah. What happened? <laughs> well, it's uh, that's an interesting question that I've never thought it in, in, in with those with those eyes, because I, I'm not even sure if it uh, if it was me choosing science or science choosing me because I was very very young uh, when I decided to be a paleontologist. I was four years old, 
And uh, yeah, I've always wanted to be a paleontologist and I just, I, I am basically a kid that never really grew up. Uh, I, I still have the same fascination for dinosaurs and extinct fish, uh, uh, animals uh, as, I, as I had when I was uh, a little kid. Uh, opening up uh, the the chips uh, packs, finding my first uh, dinosaurs in there. <laughs> That's wonderful. So you went with your passion and curiosity. Uh, that's um, that's so nice to hear because actually, that's what most people say here. Uh, when, you know, most speakers say say something similar. Uh, like that, that, uh, you know, they just follow mm -hmm. their curiosity. So, so it's kind of, we are very lucky <laughs> to have yeah. a life that, uh, that we enjoy. And, Absolutely. Um, and what led you to, you know, the current research, the specific project, or also, you know, um, organizing this polyomorph, um, lab like like is there maybe a story was it easy to get funding for it um like what what's the background story there uh do you want the short version or the long the long story version it can be also the long one because you know it's kind of unique that we can just have a conversation here so it can be okay. something in between long how, however you would like okay Yes, so uh, I've always wanted to, to be a paleontologist, as, as I said, and uh, one of the things that paleontologists do is to go to the field and find, you know, extinct creatures. Uh, you know, I, uh, when, I, I, when I went for the first time to Mozambique, I was not even starting my PhD, so I, didn't, I, would, I wasn't even sure about uh, the route to take uh, in terms of my research, uh, the direction uh, rather. And um, so uh, I was, uh, at the time uh, um, I went to Mozambique, it was really the first uh, expedition in like 50 years uh, going to that country to find uh, not dinosaurs, but mammal ancestors. And, uh, and, um, but in the same year, I was invited to do a research project in Angolan uh, Sauropterygians, uh, those uh, weird named uh, creatures, which are basically marine reptiles from the Mesozoic. Uh, but I wanted to, to, be, to be able to develop the, the, the paleontology in another country. In, in Europe, we are pretty lucky in Europe and in, in the US because there's already kind of an infrastructure and a critical mass. But in countries like Mozambique, there's no such thing. Uh, really, there's, the research is very, very little. And, uh, and, and basically, there's very few people uh, even considering really uh, doing research because it's, it's not on top of the, their priorities. Uh, for instance, Mozambique, it's a country that's dealing currently with uh, a lot of uh, uh, war problems in the north. It dealt with a long civil war during many years. You know, uh, there's starvation. There's a lot of economical problems in, in that country. So it's <laughs> research. Uh, it's really not one of the top priorities. But the way I think about uh, 
research and especially paleontology in a country like that where the reality is very, very different is it can be a catalyst and a booster uh, for economical uh, growth. Uh, for, for, for instance, uh, uh, there's places in France uh, that uh, attract millions of tourists every year uh, and they literally uh, make uh, certain uh, areas in France and even uh, in Portugal or any uh, any European countries or North America uh, that bring a lot of people and and what I saw with that is that it's a it's a tourism promoter so uh, the way uh, I like to think about the Pelemos project and and instilling research by Mozambicans in Mozambique is kind of like a way to attract uh, tourism as well because when we find new things, especially stuff like mammal ancestors from like 250 million years ago, it's also sparks the curiosity of, uh, of people, of Mozambicans themselves, first of all. So they need to be firstly the ones interested on, 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 on those matters. And that's the reason why focusing on the education is so important. And then later for, for bringing tourism as well. So it's a really long shot, I know. But uh, that's kind of more or less the, the idea. So, but to go, I mean, I, I'm jumping back and forth, but uh, I guess I guess that that's how, how it really is. Uh, and then when we went, uh, when I went first to Mozambique, actually, um, it was really a first step to, we needed to find something, basically. Uh, so in 2009, I was 23 years old at the time. Uh, and uh, we just needed to find something, basically, to justify future expeditions and to justify that, you know, Mozambique was actually worth, um, uh, paleontologically, paleontologically speaking, there, there was enough fossils and enough uh, material that would justify, you know, developing things further. And after, like, uh, three weeks in the fields, and uh, without finding nothing, uh, really, uh, we, I was in my last week uh, until we found we found the first uh, the first fossils. It was really uh, frustrating, frustrating and complicated because I was in a really really remote uh, area in 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 Nyasa. Nyasa is the poorest. Uh, um, uh, province in Mozambique. It's uh, and there's really literally nothing. It's uh, it's just small villages uh, with very few people uh, living there, just doing like uh, very uh, traditional. Um, uh, it's not hunter gathering. It's like, uh, but it's close to that. So it, uh, they they are just doing you know some farming, some little farming and uh, trading goods, often money is not even evolved. There was no electricity, there was uh, literally nothing. And I had, I, I was hiring local people to just guide me through more or less the, the field, although I knew more or less the areas to go. And they were just not believing in me. They were like, this guy's, this guy's just insane. This guy's just crazy. He's coming here looking for bones of uh, animals that are like 200, million years ago <laughs> that's completely insane this guy is crazy so i was like uh, week after week 
uh, their disbelief in me just grew ever more. And, and even I started to doubt myself. <laughs> but uh, the, the, I knew there was material there. I knew there were fossils there because they have, there, there had been reports of those, of those uh, fossils uh, in the initial geological reports from the area. So I knew there was something. It was just that I was not being able to find those locations. But lucky uh, or not, uh, towards the end of the expedition, I was, again, just completely alone and, and, and disbelieving myself and everyone around me was just uh, not believing either. Uh, I just flipped the rock and there it, there it was like a complete beautiful skull of what turned out to be a new genus and species, uh, which now we call the Nyasodom Fumukazi. So the queen, uh, the queen of Nyasa, basically, that's, that's the name, the name of, of the, um, of the fossil, uh, if you, if you translate it to the local language. Uh, and it's that it's that name because uh, uh, in in that particular region the the tribes that live there they are matrilinear so it's uh, it's actually the women that uh, uh, kind of uh, operates uh, things more or less uh, over there or it's passed uh, through uh, the female um, lineage so it's it's quite interesting so we decided to call it the queen of nyasa because we don't really know the gender of the of the of that fossil so uh with that uh it, we we had like the first good justification to actually go back to the to the to the fossil sites and uh, to apply for funding because that's that's really what uh what we need to like conduct these uh, field campaigns and these field expeditions. And uh, so we initially applied for uh, National Geographic uh, in what was called the time at the time the Young Explorers Grants. I don't think that there, there's such grants anymore. And uh, we applied to those. It was only $5,000, but it was enough to go back again next year. And, uh, and sure enough, we went there again and we, we had we we find more stuff in different locations so and it, it kept like we kept going and uh, it, we kept being able to uh, justify uh, more field expeditions uh and also with fundings from uh we, we managed to to uh, work very directly with the uh, national museum of geology in maputo uh the capital of mozambique and uh, they also brought brought in funding. We also applied for funding via Mozambique uh, to start developing the the st students there, to send them to different places, to uh, get some more training. And it kind of like really grew organically. Uh, and we started with like five thousand dollars to go to uh, with the National Geographic uh, grant, and, and uh, a couple of years ago, we got uh, Aga Khan Foundation grant, which was three hundred thousand uh, euros. It's not yet a lot. Uh, there's still those uh, multi-million, <laughs> uh, multi-million um, uh, funds uh, to apply for. But uh, yeah, it's been it's been enough to like 
justify the, uh, to the local authorities to build up uh, a new lab, to buy uh, equipment to furnish the whole uh, the whole uh, structure in Maputo, uh, to get training for for many different uh, Mozambican students. We are lucky now to have like the the first uh, two students, uh, two Mozambican students that are doing their PhDs in in South Africa at Wits University. So it's it's really. I mean, yeah, I'm really, really happy to see that uh, what started off uh, as just like a mere hope to find something, it's it's now really materializing into uh, making paleontology and science um, a, an interesting and valuable thing for the Mozambican people. So, yeah, that's that's more or less uh, uh, what happened. Wow, so impressive. Like, you should be... <laughs> that is really so impressive. And uh, I really congratulate you for going through with everything. It must have been, you know, a lot of adventures and struggles in there. Mm -hmm. And that you... Mostly, kept... mostly struggles, to be honest. <laughs> yes. Because uh, it's, it's very... Uh, it's such a different reality in Mozambique. And... Uh, and um, it's almost like uh, we operate in different wavelengths. When I when I arrive to Mozambique to do anything, it's it's literally I have to tune in to 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 the to to the wavelength, uh, and they have to kind of tune in to to mine too because it, that's that's how any relationship really works. And uh, but yeah. The, it's been it's been really a lot of struggling and a lot of um, a lot of emotions, but uh, yeah, it's slowly getting there. I mean, we started in two thousand nine, so it's been over a decade since we are doing this. So we better have some results as well. <laughs> well, you do. This is a really impressive publication that um, you know I posted it up on the room, and it's a major. I think result that you managed to get there. So you're really putting Mozambique research in mm -hmm. a major uh, scientific paper and on the map. I think that I didn't. I'm that's not that's sure. precisely the idea. Yeah, that's huge. I think it's a huge achievement. Uh, congratulations. Um, so Thank you so much. You. So. Thank you. Yeah, feel free to um, talk here about the article, you know, about the research, um, like what the findings are, and um, it's up to you if you welcome uh, questions in between or if you want people to wait a little bit until you can, like, bring your message over, and then uh, we'll open up for, for questions. Yeah, people can just uh, interrupt me. Uh, I think it's just more dynamic. I, I have no no problem with that at all. Great, thank you. Uh, but yeah, if if anyone has a question right now, I just just feel free to in, to interrupt. I have no no issues with that. I have I have a very important question. All right. What's what's the tastiest food out in Mozambique? <laughs> <laughs> the tastiest food, I would say, it's like fish directly from the sea. There you go. But you need—I mean, that's really the best food you can have because they have 
awesome uh, sea, uh, seafoods and uh, you know lobsters and big shrimps and all of that. But unfortunately, most of our field areas are like really, really inland. The most inland you can, uh, in Mozambique that it's possible. So we we rarely have a taste of the good stuff. <laughs> Only one year we had we had um, we had uh, an ex uh, part of the expedition was in the coasts because we found like a new uh, lignite deposits. Lignites are uh, kind of like the early stages of coal, basically. And uh, yeah, we, 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 we did find this location and, and lucky enough, it was just right off the coast. So yeah, on, the, on that time we did, we did try some, some nice uh, seafood. But yeah, if you go to Mozambique, uh, you gotta go to the fish market and you gotta eat all of that uh, good seafood. Awesome. <laughs> uh, okay, going going now to the to the paper, and uh, how come Mozambique is somewhat involved? Of, of course, Mozambique is not the main focus of 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 the paper, but it happens that Mozambique contributes with fossils uh, to some of the results of the paper, and that that's why Mozambique kind of comes into the to the picture. Uh, so, uh, basically what we found was, uh, when do mammal ancestors, we find out that it's not mammals that initially were, uh, warm-blooded, it was their mammal ancestors, their mammalian ancestors that were, uh, warm-blooded. So being warm-blooded is basically you, you're able to produce your own metabolism, uh, uh, at, at a very constant rate and a very high rate as well. So the the rates of metabolism for um, for endotherms we call endotherms any any warm-blooded animal basically uh, it's way higher. It's many times higher than an ectotherm. Ectotherms are like the animals like lizards or snakes or turtles that kind of mostly depend of the environmental temperature for them to do anything really. Uh, fishes are also in ectotherms. So uh, the only groups of animals, major groups of animals that are endotherms, so they uh, warm-blooded, are mammals and birds. So we wanted to see when did mammals first evolved endothermy. So when did they first evolve this warm-blooded bloodedness? And we found out it was actually some 30 million years before the origin of mammals themselves. So it was their mammal ancestors that that uh, are, had this. So the big question is how can you really measure body temperature or estimate body temperature in an extinct animal? Because we cannot just simply stick a thermometer uh, in a fossil because that, that's just going to tell us the, the temperature of the rock, obviously. Um, so we had to use like a very uh, unconventional, uh, I would say, uh, proxy, which is uh, the inner ear. So our ear is composed of two main things. The ear is not only uh, capable of hearing things, that's one part of the ear. The other part of the ear uh, works as kind of like the sense balance. It's called the vestibular organ or bony labyrinth or yeah, 
bony labyrinth. And the other part is the cochlea, which is kind of like a coiled uh, structure. Uh, and that's, that's for hearing. So your inner ear has these two major functions. And we just focused in one of the one of the functions, the vestibular organ, these semicircular canals, which uh, which so the the vestibular organ is composed of these uh, semicircular canals, and these semicircular canals are called semicircular because they are kind of circular uh, most of the times, and they are uh, and they are orthogonal to each other. And the fact that they are orthogonal to each other, uh, well, let, let, still backing up a little bit. Uh, so these these semicircular canals are filled with a, 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 a liquid called endolymph. And when the when you rotate your head, uh, this liquid inside of these canals is going to kind of slosh around. Uh, it's going to move in the opposite direction that the the, the head is moving, and the, the the canals are kind of orthogonal. So you have uh, we we humans and animals uh, operate in three dimensions. So they kind of detect each each orthogonal canal detects the accelerations of the head into the three dimensions. That's basically how it works. Um, so. Okay, so there's this liquid uh, called endolymph, and uh, the the equations that govern the the sensitivity and uh, and basically the biomechanics of the inner ear of the semicircular canals is um, is dependent on on temperature because viscosity. The viscosity of the endolymph is dependent on temperature. If you think about it, any liquid is dependent on temperature. Of course, if you uh, if you start um, uh, let's let's imagine if you put some oil on a pan, uh, and at room temperature is very viscous, but when you start heating it up, it start it starts becoming less viscous. It starts to be runnier, basically. And that's that's really the principle. So when temperature increases, such as the temp the body temperature of mammal ancestors increased, uh, that had that had an impact on the viscosity of the endolymph, on the runniness of the endolymph, uh, because uh, uh, it was operating at a higher temperature. It's just really a pure physical constraint. Uh, so what needed to happen for the function of the, for the biomechanics of the semicircular canal to, to be maintained was to change the morphology or the geometry or the, yeah, the, the geometry basically, the size and, and the morphology, the size and the shape of the inner ears needed to change to compensate for the increase of, of body temperature. So that's the, that's the theoretical uh, principle. Of course, we had these ideas before, before running the experiments, and it turned out that uh, it works. <laughs> we were actually kind of surprised that, that it really, that the, the temperature could be uh, estimated on the basis of, of the shape of the semicircular canals. And we know it works because we tested in like several hundreds of uh, extant animals, so animals living uh, uh, today. Uh, 
So we measured the biomechanically relevant uh, uh, um, parts of the inner ear. We measured uh, all of them for 300 uh, something um, animals for the three canals uh, and several times. So that's like several thousands of measurements. Uh, and and uh, by looking at, at, at we know with what body temperature animals uh, operate uh, today. So typically warm-blooded animals, they are called warm-blooded for a good reason because they do have body temperature that it's higher than for the cold-blooded animals uh, like lizards and so on. So their body temperature is significantly higher than for those of uh, ectotherms. Uh, although there's exceptions, <clears throat> there's many ectotherms that actually like to operate at uh, very warm temperatures, but those are more the exception than the rule. If you look uh, at one of the pictures of the of our paper, uh, it's actually figure three. Uh, there's these two. Um, if I think I think you all have access to the to the paper, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. It's so, yeah, so in figure three, in one of those uh, um, uh, probability density, density plots, where you have basically two, uh, it's not two histograms because they are really two curves, uh, you can see that uh, the, the blue ones are the cold-blooded uh, group and the, the red ones are the warm-blooded group, and they separate really, really well. So we managed to test empirically that this proxy actually works and, and it, it works with an astonishing uh, precision of some 90 something percent for groups. When I say for groups is, is for groups of animals, so uh, clays of animals. Uh, because this, uh, this metric, what we call the thermal, motility, the thermal motility index, works really well for groups and not so well for species because species uh, for species level uh, the signal from locomotion because basically when when you're looking at the inner ear you you the inner ear is a, is a is a a system to basically measure the rotation of the head so locomotion has a big impact on on the on the functioning of the in a year obviously but we by working on the equations and by basically pulling apart the information that we need uh, it works really really well for for the for the temperature uh, but for species the locomotion effects kind of like overrides the the signal and it's, it doesn't work as well but it works still pretty well uh, but for groups, we can have some 90% accuracy uh, to detect the um, the to detect. Uh, basically, if I, if I if you give me a group of animals and uh, 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 an in, uh, the inner ear of a group of animals, and we make the measurements, we can basically tell you with 90% accuracy uh, if it's going to be an endotherm or an ectotherm, and this is done by um, by then looking at the logistic regression, but that's kind of like technical detail. I don't think it matters so much. 
so yeah, it works pretty well for extant animals. And then of course we want to test for extinct animals. When you look at the extinct animals, you have several different uh, complications because oftentimes the inner ear is not entirely preserved. Sometimes it's deformed. Uh, sometimes it's not preserved at all. Many, many scans actually, we have a section in the, in the paper, in the supplements, saying how many unsuccessful scans uh, we've done. There's many, many uh, scans that basically did not work. We put them in the, in the machine, we tried to scan them, and then you know, either there was no contrast or that region was not preserved. So it was really like an iterative process of like going back and forth of refining uh, the model uh, and increasing the sampling and, you know, this over and over and over over five years <laughs> that it took to, to complete this study. So we we started to amass the data for uh, for the fossils, and we ended up with some uh, fifty six uh, or sixty something. I can't recall the 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 number. It's around fifty or sixty. Uh, specimens of, of uh, fossil synapsids. So synapsids are, it's basically the, the lineage that leads towards um, uh, mammals. So it contains mammals. Uh, and it, it excludes uh, basically uh, reptiles, all the reptiles, including birds, because birds are reptiles, because uh, dinosaurs uh, are in that in that lineage, and and uh, dinosaurs are uh, relatives to uh, to birds. So uh, um, yeah, so we we looked at these fossils, and we kind of started to trace back uh, when would this uh, origination of endothermy would happen in the in the evolutionary tree of uh, synapsids which is the lineage that includes mammals. So uh, we found out that it was in this clade called Mammaliomorpha, which uh, in technical terms is uh, Tritilodontids plus Mammalia. It's this clade. Tritilodontids are, uh, if you would look at the skull of a Tritilodontid, it is kind of already hard to differentiate it, unless, I mean, unless it's, you are really like a specialist, uh, it would be hard for anyone to really see the difference, but these uh, mammaliomorphs have uh, an origination uh, uh, dates much, much earlier than, than the actual clade of mammals. When I say clade, is like the group, it's, it's the monophyletic group of mammals, so that, that's basically all the descendants of mammals. Um, uh, so it's it's in this clade, and we found out that uh, the acquisition of endothermy was actually very very uh, sudden uh, in geological terms. It was in about uh, one million years, uh, and we tested this several different ways. We we used we actually purposefully used uh, gradual models to see if they would retrieve uh, better results or not, and uh, it was very consistent that the best evolutionary models that would explain the origination of endothermy, so of warm-bloodedness, would be uh, would be uh, like a very fast acquisition. 
that was one of the surprising aspects of the paper. And uh, and yeah, like in a nutshell, that's that's more or less uh, what what we did. That's really impressive. Um, that it's so accurate and um, that you can distinguish mm -hmm. so well. Um, yeah, that's, indeed. That's really interesting. And uh, so, basically, do you? So, so what? What happened to basically the the timeline? Um, did that change? Like your insights, the timeline of when we think that um, warm bloodedness um, started developing, or is that you know? Do you still need to find more, you know, bones? You mean what? What do you think triggered the such a sudden uh, origination of endothermia? Yeah, exactly. Like did something okay. happen? Okay. Yeah. We have well. That, again, we are working with fossils and can only work with their bones mostly, unless you have like very exceptional findings. Sometimes that does happen, and you can find fossils with hairs and even like really soft tissues, uh, like. Uh, guts and uh, like brain parts and and uh, but that's really rare. That's m much more the exception than the rule. And um, so uh, what we believe it happened was uh, during these uh, periods of probably one million years was the uh, was the origination of of um, fur. But fur, in the sense of pelage, as an insulatory um, as an insulatory uh, device, let's say, uh, because if you are producing your inner uh, your inner heat, you need to preserve it. And fur and feathers are really some of the the highest insulatory uh, the, the the materials of, of highest insulatory properties. Uh, we all know that uh, there's there's uh, we use uh, wool as like winter clothes, so that or or even uh, sleeping bags that are uh, made of, of feathers. So they really have amazing insulatory properties. So uh, and that's that's one of the things. And the other thing is the sarcolipin mediated thermogenesis, which is basically a metabolic pathway. Uh, that allows uh, cells and mitochondria to, to generate their own heat at a constant rate. So we believe that these two kind of key innovations had to occur at the same time because uh, if you're producing your, your heat uh, and you're letting it dissipate, it kind of doesn't make any sense because the energy for any animal is obviously very costly. And of course, I didn't mention this, but the biggest difference be between ectotherms and endotherms, so between warm-blooded and, and uh, cold-blooded animals, is, is that uh, the warm-blooded animals have a big, big uh, disadvantage. It's because energy is very costly and you need to forage for more food and to, uh, to have a higher intake of food. Uh, comparatively speaking, to to uh, ectotherms, ectotherms they are they very very often uh, brumate, which is another fancy word for hibernate. 
they they are not active uh, through most of the year uh, we we uh, in most places except like in tropical uh, regions but like in temperate regions like in Portugal and Europe and North America lizards for example are mostly seen during the during the summer uh, times because they they simply cannot heat themselves enough during the winter to actually do any activity. So they, they enter some kind of state of hibernation. Uh, of course, uh, being endotherm allows you to explore your niches throughout the year and, and, and kind of like be more independent of the, of the winds of the climate, basically. Uh, so, uh, where was I going with this? Um, yeah, I think you explained like uh, what the circumstances were to kind of support this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So basically, uh, two two things had to happen physiologically wise for mammal ancestors to become endotherms. Uh, we simply detect that manifestation by looking at the inner ear uh, of, of these mammal ancestors in, in how the inner ear size and shape change throughout, uh, throughout time, basically. Yeah, thank you for your answer. And um, yeah, I want to invite other people to ask questions. Please press your microphone if you have a question. Yeah, please go ahead. Hi. Uh... First of all, thanks for taking time to share your work with us and your, your backstory mm -hmm. was, was super interesting. Um, Thank you. So I, I've been working in the auditory system for, for a while. I currently work in the cortex, but I, I spent years uh, doing biophysics and work in, you know, in the cochlea mostly. Mm -hmm. um, so this is this is super interesting, uh, and I, I really like the arguments you were making about uh, the temperature and the mic, you know the effects on microfluidics. I'm curious because I, I was really locked in on modeling uh, the, the the micro mechanics of cochlear hair bundles mm -hmm. and comparing mm -hmm. them across vestibular hair bundles. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm curious if you've thought about whether there's any parallel uh, with the, the change in the, the, the shape of these canals with uh, changes in uh, hair bundle morphology? Uh, well, uh, I would, uh, that's a hard question because we cannot really go to the micro mechanics. We have to stay at the macro mechanics. So at the macromechanics, we, we are basically operating in terms of uh, the upper corner frequency of the semicircular canals and the, the sensitivity. And what to, all right, to answer straight to your question is we don't know. We, we really don't know, and I'm not sure if we can know because we would need to have hair bundles, uh, hair bundles preserved in the fossils. So what we can look is at the size and dimensions and morphology of the inner ear of the of the semicircular canals. Uh, what what I can tell you that we can uh, that we can deduce is by looking at the the membranous labyrinth and uh, 
there's in the equations there's uh, there's some uh, variables like the cupula stiffness uh but that's that's still not micro mechanics it's still at the level of uh, macro mechanics so there there's uh, it is possible to to estimate uh, uh th those things but it's it's i would say it's impossible to really ascertain that but my prediction is that there wouldn't be much changes at the micro mechanical level I'm saying that because we don't see much changes in the micromechanical level uh, between species, um, uh, extent species, because, for instance, uh, for the the uh, hair bundled cells, uh, the 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 system that it's used is like the toadfish, so it's like a very very basal uh, vertebrate compared to a human, uh, and, and that's the, the, the model for humans. So in terms of the micromechanics, I don't think those changes would, would, would uh, my suspicion is that those changes wouldn't be too significant, but uh, it will be impossible to answer the, that uh, directly. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I wasn't really trying to step too, too. It depends on what you mean by micromechanics, I guess. Um, I wasn't really trying to get at that. I, I do have uh, some currently unpublished work that gets at that. The, the only mm -hmm. thing I would push back on a little bit is there, there are significant micromechanical changes even within a single vestibular organ across, uh, you know, spatially across the organ and, and certainly across the tonotopy and, and the cochlea. And there's big micro in the cochlea, but uh, yeah. but, but we big, are working in the vestibular system. Yeah, there's there's a big uh, difference between vestibular and cochlear micromechanics, and then there's big mm -hmm. differences across species. But I, I was more wondering if there was like a, a corresponding systematic change in like gross hair bundle morphology, like size and. Uh, shape of hair bundles corresponding with changes in, uh, with shapes in the canals, but yeah, really, really yeah. The ideal person to answer to this would actually be Romain, uh, who who is unfortunately not here because he he's more like the 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 uh, semicircular canal biomechanics expert. Uh, I know this, uh, but not at, at the level of depth that um, that. Uh, uh, that goes down to the level of micromechanics. Uh, one, what I can tell you is really uh, uh, all the variables that um, deal in some way or another with micromechanicals, ma micromechanics uh, in the equations that govern semicircular uh, canal bio uh, biomechanics, so like upper corner frequency and sensitivity. Uh, do not, uh, uh, can be estimated from the membranous labyrinth, not the, uh, uh, so they can be estimated towards the, 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 they can be measured in the membranous labyrinth and be estimated for the bony uh, labyrinth. Um, but, but uh, uh, I'm not sure if they, if they, they would have much, much of a, too much of a big difference. I can I can ask my colleague and uh, or we can stay in contact and uh, and we'll try to 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 explore that a little bit if you want. 
Yeah, sounds great. Thank, thanks for answering my question. And I'm going to share your work with uh, my collaborators. And this is very right. interesting. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, Dr. Shah, Joyce, um, Frank, did you have a question? So if, if nobody else has a question, I have now one. Uh, I, Do you have uh, Namanu? Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Go ahead. Uh, maybe it's, uh, I'm not, I'm not sure it's, uh, it's within topic, but I was uh, reading something about chameleon and something like uh, this animal. I mean, it's a bit uh, puzzle of like uh, how these animals change color. What is evolutionary? Uh, you know, how, how, what? Uh, what is the evolutionary perspective from uh, for this particular animal to get this color? In in one of the paper I read, it's because it's trying to change the temperature of the body because uh, when you this dark color, uh, you can have more uh, temperature. At the same time, if it's light bright, light color, you can uh, you know uh, radiate more temperature. So uh, I was asking. Uh, uh, if you can uh, give a hint about like uh, how the evolutionary trait actually evolved and uh, I mean how it got the the, the the ability to change the colors and also the temperature. Uh, yes, all right. So a chameleon can change uh, can change colors and, and maybe. Uh, um, heat up using uh, basking and uh, and using darker colors to attract more heat, therefore to increase their temperature uh, for being active. Uh, so yes, indeed, uh, uh, a chameleon is like a tip, your typical ectotherm that is uh, basically actively thermoregulating by basking and, and doing all these behavioral uh, things to heat up their temperatures until it reaches uh, their preferred temperature so, then, so that then they can go, uh, go and do whatever they need to do, uh, eat or uh, uh, forage or whatever. So, um, so your question is is more like uh, why would they why would they have the body temperature that they have? Or? Uh, I mean, my question was like, uh, is there any environmental feedback? Like, if you say, okay, evolutionary, uh, like Darwinian uh, point of evolution, like random mutation. But how is it possible to change the color or according to the environment or the I mean uh, they, they might change the color for regulating the temperature to get to the their preferred temperature right yeah. uh, but that's that it's still it's still uh, that's like a still a typically ectotherm like uh, behavior uh, because uh, again, like typically ectotherms, they need to, they have a preferred temperature that they like to operate. So they need to reach up that temperature, that temperature so that they, they can then be active. While, while uh, endotherms, they have, they have a constant inner metabolic system uh, that uh, raises the temperature and maintains the temperature constant. 
so uh, I'm not sure if your question is more like, okay, uh, if an ectotherm uh, changes temperature uh, and it still has, can operate within a certain range, uh, how does that work? And one thing is, one thing is uh, the plastic, um, plasti the plasticity of, of uh, the physiological components of the inner ear, they can, do, they can operate at a range of temperatures, but they have still a preferred uh, body temperature that they, 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 they like to operate the best, that they op operate the best, actually. And that's, that's been demonstrated by several papers, actually, uh, in terms of like locomotor performance. Of course, there's, there's like, uh, uh, it's really like a curve with a maximum. Uh, if you keep raising the temperature, a lizard will keep improving the maximum speed that they can, they can go, and then it starts to decline. And it works more or less the same way uh, for, for, uh, for the in a year. It, it has a, uh, it's like a curve. It should um, increase their performance until a certain temperature. And then it, if it starts operating at two higher temperatures, uh, it's going to decline the, the, the performance. And that's can be, that can be demonstrated by looking at the equations themselves. Uh, but one thing is this plasticity of the physiology. Another thing is the different timescale that we are talking about. And the, the timescale that we are talking about is evolutionary timescale in, in the order of millions of years. So we are not talking about little physiological changes to the inner ear and how, how like say, in terms of micromechanics, uh, uh, things can change, but at, really at the large evolutionary uh, scale, how does the the inner, how did the inner ear change in terms of their gross morphology and uh, dimensions? And what we do see uh, in the fossil records, if we trace back uh, the evolutionary history of these mammal ancestors, is that uh, the size of the semicircular canals decreases, uh, and that's predicted by the by the governing equations of the biomechanics when the temperature increases, when the body temperature increases. I'm not sure if I'm, if I'm, I was able to, I think this, this is, this was more or less what you wanted. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. To know, thank right? you, thanks a lot, it's all, okay. it was wonderful, thank you. Thanks. All right. Yeah, Frank, do you want to go ahead now? Thank you. Well, I think Dr. Shah, you opened your mic. I, I think maybe you want to ask a question first. Yeah, you can go first or I can ask. Uh, okay, thank you so much, Ricardo. That was a really fascinating work. And my question from you is about the optimization because we are talking about the inner ear system. And I'm just assuming there is an optimization needed there especially when you're talking about the temperature and i was wondering do you have any information about the electromotility and the distribution of the protein in regard to your research or not it uh, i mean again with fossils we are limited in terms of the amount of information we can have of course there's this uh this uh potassium channels in the at, at the very micro and i think that's even nanomechanics <laughs> at a nanomechanical level uh 
that that uh, that need to be regulated for the for the um, hair bundle hair hair bundle cells uh, to work. But uh, that's at a very different level than we are operating. We are operating at a macro mechanical level because that's really the information, the only types of information that we can extract from fossils. So we only we have to bear in mind that we only have access to information of the the bony labyrinth. It's not even the membranous labyrinth because the endolymph runs within the membranous labyrinth. Um, and we don't have access to any information such as the cupula, the hair bundle cells, uh, those potassium uh, uh, channels and, 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 and all of that. So uh, even for extant animals, that type of information is, is really rare, uh, even, even more so for, for uh, to go down at, at those levels, uh, at really chemical changes. As far as I'm aware, I mean, maybe maybe there's new current research, uh, but I think, yeah, I think that's that's about uh, the best we can do really at the moment. I'd say one quick thing. Uh, as you said, even in existing animals, uh, definitely yeah. in humans. We do not know the identity of the uh, mechanotransduction channel. We don't know what those yeah. proteins are. There are a few, a couple labs in Harvard that are kind of uh, making the Kool-Aid on, on a current theory. There's two proteins called TMC1 and TMC2 that are mm -hmm. hypothesized to be part of that channel. But mm -hmm. it's uh, under heavy, heavy debate. Um, so we, we know some pieces of the like tip link mechanical uh, sensitive channel assembly, but we really don't have a full picture of what's going yeah. on. Yeah. yeah. No, but that's going down to a, um, a, a level that we are not really operating. We are operating at the largest scale possible. And it's still for, for an entire uh, uh, dimetrodon, which is a uh, four or five meters long animal, uh, we are operating at millimeter scale uh for an animal that is 300 million years uh old so we really have to operate at a macro mechanical level we cannot we cannot even think i mean we can deduce uh things and we can uh extrapolate how they might work but we cannot have access to any of that information at that level the thing is in the end of the day <laughs> what's really surprising and what we really enjoyed is the fact that by looking at the macro mechanical level, still there is empirical strong evidence that the thermomotility index, this matrix that we are using, works with 90% accuracy. So that's that's something that needs to be taken into account. So temperature does have an, a huge impact in the ma macro mechanics. So it ha if it has an, an impact on the macro mechanics, it will certainly have at the nanomechanics level and, and certainly have at the micro mechanics level too. So yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, it, it, it's we have to work uh, with what we have and what we have is fossils. And even to get information from those fossil, fossils, I tell you, it took us a long time. <laughs> took us uh, many years to assemble this data set. Uh, so, I mean, it is what it is. Uh, I would love to, have, to look at proteins in these fossils, but I mean, 
we can't. The, that that's that's the reality of things, unfortunately. Like if I would design it, right? I, I'm not a, a audio um, circuitry expert, and never was. But um, I would design it with having more liquid faster. I would just add more inhibition to the system, no? Like some more inhibitory neurons and receptors. Wouldn't that? From a <laughs> from a neurological uh, standpoint. Yeah. Well, I would, uh, uh, it seems that animals did not opt uh, via that way. I mean, if the the, the morphology of the inner ear really does change, oh, no. that seems that it was effectively the option yeah. uh, that animals took. Yeah, that. But then also, don't you? Would you think? that there's still like just more signals coming in still like and then but see, clearly like, uh, the temperature signal seems to have a, a, an overriding uh, effect on this for sure because otherwise we wouldn't have uh, such a clear separation between ectotherms and endotherms yeah yeah no right? i don't mean like just like the anatomy but additionally maybe you would add to the the neurological circuitry some more inhibition to the system mm -hmm. I don't yeah, yeah, yeah. it doesn't make sense but um mm. with uh, do you do you think that uh, makes sense? I what i would say is uh i'm very biased i i think the hearing or hearing organs are fantastic uh but I, they, I, they are as finely tuned and optimized uh of a of an organ as, as we we know of like the the auditory system for example is tuned to up to nine octaves which is in contrast to less than an octave in the visual system it uh spans multiple or orders of magnitude and it's very very sensitive uh cochlear hair cells can detect uh vibrations of the the tympanic membrane that are less than the width of a hydrogen atom so things have been really, really, really finely tuned. It's broad dynamic range, high sensitivity. This is the kind of thing engineers just dream of designing. So in terms of the front end, I don't know that there's much more to be optimized. Um, but sure, certainly downstream, there's opportunities but for... Now, now that reminded me, reminded me of one uh, thing. I, I'm not so sure about the neurological aspects of it. Uh, but one thing that did change and that uh, birds, for instance, had uh, taken a different evolutionary route was instead of changing the morphology of, of the, uh, the, the morphology and the size of the semicircular canals, birds did change the viscosity uh, in terms of the chemistry, literally the chemistry of birds, um, uh, bird uh, endolymph is different from uh, all the other animals. So, and uh, birds are indeed um, endotherms, and they took a, an entirely different route, evolutionary route, to to become endotherms or to uh, to readapt their inner ear system to the to the new reality of uh, warmer uh, temperature. The, the other big. I mean, this is again not talking at at a at a neurological level. Uh, this is really talking about. Uh, just the the inner uh, workings of the of of the of the semicircular canal system. Uh, another, 
So I got a quick question about that. Just to make one last comment. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, the, the other thing that's of interest, uh, a difference across mammals and birds is mammals, uh, or sorry, birds can regenerate their cells. So everything I was Ooh. saying about, uh, you know, the, the precise optimization of the mammalian system, that has to work with the constraint of not being able to regenerate hair cells. So it has to be... Ooh. That's to do all of that and be robust. But that's for the cochlear. That's for the cochlear system, right? Um, yes. Uh, same for vestibular. I they, same, okay. Lab, labs that are going after how to regenerate hair cells in mammals are studying, you know, vestibular end organs of. Okay. Uh, okay. Of birds. Yeah, usually if you have a more fine-tuned system that is more precise, you um, you basically have more variety of inhibition, like you have more different types of interneurons and also more subtypes of GABA-A receptors and so on. So that's why I thought that there's probably a heavy, um, complex inhibitory system than yeah, that, that that now that you say that uh, again, Katarina, it does remind me too. Uh, this is stepping away from vestibular, but you know, cochlear. Sorry, that's what I know best. There's actually mm -hmm. two types: inner hair, inner hair cells, and outers. Inners send signals to the brain, and the outers amplify signals, and they receive feedback from the brain. So there's a mechanism for mm -hmm. uh, dampening of sensitivity along the cochlea from from the brain. So there is a, a sense of this, like, uh, you know, top-down inhibition that you're talking about, Katerina. Cool. <laughs> Thank you. Mayor, go ahead. Hey, speaking of, you know, the, so the, it'd be interesting as far as the viscosity changes in the birds and say, okay, they change it. So one question would be, why did they change it? Is it because they're going to, you know, basically go up in elevation and down and adjustments there? That's one. And then the second one is, what about those diving birds, right? You know, those birds that can dive down into the water, and hunt for fish and they go down pretty pretty darn deep right you know uh, um uh the, the types of questions that i'm getting uh, uh, they are i mean you know how many how many uh, viscosity measurements have ever been done for the endolymph of uh, of birds it, it has they have only been done for uh one species which is the pigeon and uh, and uh, for eight samples. <laughs> okay, so so the amount of research on this stuff it's really really limited. I, I mean I have no idea if diving birds. My my suspicion was would be that you know overall birds would 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 have more or less the same viscosity uh, because they operate all more or less at the same uh, body temperature and they do more or less. Uh, the same kinds of things. Of course, this is this is like a suspicion and a, a guesstimate, uh, an educated guess, really. That's that's really what it is. Uh, but it's no no more than that because there's really little. I mean, there's as I said, there's only one paper ever published on the viscosity of of the endolymph for for birds. So I mean, the, uh, and that's actually one of the things that our paper. Um, exposes is is uh, that there's a there's very little stuff done across entire groups of animals uh in this type of research i mean 
we are paleontologists and we are working with the with our systems and what what we can uh, do and actually we did try to to talk uh, maybe some of you know uh, richard rabbits uh, who's from the university of U utah and he's kind of like uh, a little bit of the pope in terms of uh, uh, semi-circular canal biomechanics and we did try to work with him uh in this in this respects like uh let's try to do some measurements of viscosity and so on but in the end he, he had other research priorities and it did not work but you know there's there's one of the things that we found out is that there's a world of information to be known really uh, that's that was something that our paper really really uh shows of course of course it's not it's not to the to the eyes of of uh, of uh, say someone that did never did research on this and that reads the paper, but uh, that's that's really one of the the, the 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 things that we highlight. There's a world of information to be gathered, uh, basic information like uh, even membranous uh, labyrinth dimensions for many many animals. It's not known. Uh, we we actually presented the first. Uh, measurements uh, of the membranous labyrinth for, um, or not the first, but some of the first, uh, there were like three or four uh, previously published. And then there's the Jones and Spells paper, which, uh, which we also used. But uh, for many measurements in 3D, we were actually the first ones to produce uh, uh, an entire um, uh data set from the membranous labyrinth for 35 species or so so i mean we really uh, i think that we made really important strides in terms of like uh comparative uh comparative uh, physiology if you want uh, of the in a year for a lot of different uh, extent animals and really how we deduce uh the, the bony membranous uh, relationships um, uh, uh, were, this is like entirely new uh, stuff. Uh, the, these relationships were, were, were the, uh, for the first time published, uh, uh, were uh, published for the first time. So, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we've, we've done what we, can, what we could uh, to have like a firm statement about like bony membranous relationships, for example. But we are well aware that there's a, a world, I mean, this is an entire ma many careers over uh, that, that can be dedicated to like explore the membranous labyrinth, the cupula stiffness for every single uh, animal, the viscosity uh, of, of different groups, uh, so far, for the entire animal kingdom, there's only eight species known for their viscosity. Seven of them have uh, water-like viscosity, including humans. Uh, and then there's birds. They, birds clearly stand out. Uh, birds, when, when I say birds, it's like uh, the pigeon species. <laughs> okay. It's Columbia, Livia, and that's all. Uh, but, I mean, yeah, yeah. We did try to tackle that before uh, to have even more uh, assertive conclusions about um, about uh, about this. But uh, first of all, we are not interested. We were not interested in birds. We were interested in mammals, and for mammals, there were like three, four species published. 
and uh, all those three four species had water-like viscosity so that's that's uh that's what we can do oh yeah we totally agree that you did you know really amazing very impactful research we just um are contemplating about um, what else <laughs> what's next um so i really appreciate you summarizing you know the the amount of work and impact and so on that that you did uh with this work and um it's for sure a lot of work and um, hard work uh so we really appreciate that for sure uh, i know frank had the question do, do you want to go ahead frank i i have kind of two questions but it but it seems like with with a question that maher uh, um stated uh, i think i'll get a similar question because i'm, I'm also going that direction so uh, i mean right now i'm more of a social scientist but i trained as a sound engineer so i'm i'm, I'm very okay. into the speed of sound thing and that and you touch the motor coordination navigation spatial awareness the, these terms are in the paper so, mm -hmm. so i was also wondering um if there if if there's um you know um the speed of sound in, in air is 343 meters per second and in, in water it's 1480. So mm -hmm. I was I was wondering uh, what the what there's what the temperature of the blood um, had as an effect uh, on, on this navigation uh, system. So that was kind of my, my first question, but I guess the, the answer would be uh, kind of in the direction that Mahara got. Mm, but uh, the thing is, uh, the temperature of the animal leaf is the temperature of the body and not the temperature of the medium that the animal is immersed in, whether it's air or water or, I don't know, lava. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Uh, so uh, the, the, the body temperature is really what matters. Uh, it's not so much of the temperature of the medium. Uh, unless you are asking more uh, things along the lines of uh, the cochlear system, which is the auditory system, and that, that would not be a question for me. So th that would be for the cochlear researcher that was talking uh, before. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. With um, and I, uh, we we are having these discussions. So I'm I'm always interested into that. So, but as a paleontologist, yeah, I, yes. I get that correct, right? So, just a more basic question. I'm I'm also interested into when the tactile sense split from the auditory uh, sense. So maybe uh, that is way out of uh, outside of the scope of the paper. So I'm just interested mm -hmm. in your take on that. How did that happen? Because I have a lot of uh, discussions on that. Uh, that uh, the touch and hearing that there are similar cells mm -hmm. in, involved yeah. and mm -hmm. and uh, so if that how is that similar or are different uh, in your understanding in the evolutionary sense? Mm -hmm. Well, that's one of the most marvelous uh, stories that paleontology can tell. And uh, unfortunately, I'm not a specialist on on this, but uh, what you can see very very clearly in the fossil records is the evolution of of uh, the, the, the middle ear uh, in the fossils. You can actually see the migration of the mandibular ears, uh, mandibular bones, uh, migrating in, uh, to form eventually the, the middle ear. So those, uh, those three bones that compose the, the, the middle ear. Um, and basically, yeah, it was uh, what paleontologists can tell is kind of like the timing of that occurrence and how, how did it change uh 
eventually get, uh, I'm, I'm not I'm not so much aware if there's people really working on the biophysics of, of how that sound trans transmission uh, stuff uh, works but what 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 happens physically speaking and what I can tell you because uh, I just know a little bit about it uh, I'm not a specialist on that on this area but yeah the the, the, the mandibular bones so the the, the jaw bones, the posterior jaw bones, so the back parts of the jaw bones. So yeah, all right. If you look at the at the reptile jaw, it's composed of many different bones. Okay, there's like the uh, the angular, there's the serangular, there's the articular, there's the pre-articular, there's there's the coronoids, there's a bunch of different bones. There's the dental where uh, the dent the dentary has has all the teeth so like there's different bones that compose uh, the jaw of, uh, of say a lizard uh, your general reptile but if you look at the jaw of a mammal it's only composed of one bone so you okay you have these two extremes you have a lot of bones in like the, the ancestral condition and then you have only one bone in the mammalian condition and what really happened was that the sh the, the back part of the jaw what what uh, people think is that uh, any and actually you see any uh, many lizards doing this today they kind of put their heads on the ground to kind of like uh, um, hear it's not really hearing because the it's more like to feel the transmission of vibrations through through the ground so they put their head on the ground and what when you put your head in the ground, if you are a lizard, uh, the bones that touch are the mandibular bones, so the bones of the jaw. Uh, so the posterior parts of the the these bones started to shorten and shorten ever more until they become what they are today. Uh, and it's really just uh, three uh, tiny little bones. Hello? So, um, I guess I, I think it, Ricardo it, it, got a phone call. I, I think he's still speaking, but there's maybe another phone ringing. Yeah, I am, but there's there's so much noise right now. <laughs> I think they're kicking me out. <laughs> Hello? Yeah. yeah, yeah. We're, we're here. Are you okay? Is everything okay? Yeah, just one second. Hello. Yeah, you're still on. No, no. Okay, problem. sorry. Do you? Sorry, they 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 just started the uh, music out loud here, and I I needed to migrate uh, uh, somewhere else. Yeah. Well, how much time do you have? I know we're going over an hour now, so. Yeah, let me know. Uh, until until uh, all your questions are satisfied, so. Oh wow! That could be that could be like twelve hours, dude. Yeah, so you know. don't, don't oh. say that. Don't like, we talk a lot out here. Well then, then. Uh, but also listen. I don't know a little bit more. Because it's it's uh, it's night here already. It's uh, eight p.m. Yeah, I'm one hour ahead here in Germany. So. <laughs> okay. As long as you're having fun and you want to keep going, you know, it's the clubhouse is kind of what we do. You know, I guess we're shifting into more of a social 
Okay. Yeah. yeah, we can we can just keep going for a little bit and then uh, and, and uh, actually I have a, I have uh, a dinner, but it's not uh, it's not too um, uh, it's not too formal. So yeah. So I mean, one of the reasons I was asking about the birds earlier, I was wondering, like you know, because when the birds you know they dive, they go down, and there's a uh, especially those deep diving birds, right? There's a lot of pressure that they're applying to the ear, right? And mm. uh, especially the you know, I was wondering hmm, viscosity levels of you know having you know like especially with nitrogen going into the you know in the bubbles and stuff like that, right? So I was wondering. It, just in general, is pressure like how with mammals? Are there animals, mammals that um, in, in your studies that put themselves in you know pressure situations or you know pressurizing environments? Right? Does that affect number uh, one? And then the second thing actually was as far you know I, I learned recently that I guess the nose is more more listens to the molecules than it does really smell with the lock and key thing. It's more of a vibration uh, deal. Is and so have you? notice correlations between scent and uh, your studies right like are there like whenever there's changes are they also changing in in, in the scent the scent uh, as well as the ear um, or are those like kind of independent in, okay in, in uh, what paleontologists can know uh, is quite limited in terms of uh, in terms of uh, the especially the sense of smell because okay, what we what we can what we can tell what, what can we tell? We can tell the size of the olfactory bulbs by looking at the brain endocast of uh, different uh, creatures. When they are well preserved, they are not too deformed, and uh, and we simply we simply have uh, scans that work. I mean, there's really literally some really simple uh, technical issues that sometimes can screw up uh, everything. Um, so there's, that's one of the things. And the other things is like, uh, osteological correlates. That's the fancy word to say, um, signals that the, the bone can give, uh, for stuff like whiskers, for example. And, and whiskers, well, it's not really smelling. It's more like sensing. In a way, and it's not necessarily related to the olfactory. Yeah, it's not necessarily re related to olfactory bulb uh, because it's it's the trigeminal nerve that uh, innervates uh, that stuff. So it's yeah, that's that's more mechanical. So yeah, that, that so to to really look at the sense of smell, you, you need to look at the size of the olfactory bulbs in in. Um, in endocasts, because we don't really have the the bone the the brain preserved in 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 mammals, uh, in mammal ancestors. This in this case, and what what seems uh, that happened were was that uh, in these mammal ancestors around two hundred and uh, so Morganucodon is. 230 million years ago. No, no, Morganucodon is, is more recent. It's like 200 million years ago. Yeah. Uh, they had a big expansion of the olfactory bulbs. Okay. So it seems that uh, mammal ancestors were more like driven by smell than actually by, by, by vision because the optic lobes were not so, so large. So, uh, 
yeah, what we can say is that uh, around 200 million years ago, there seemed there seemed to have been a, a trade-off, or not not so much a trade-off, but an expansion of the olfactory capabilities of of mammal ancestors. But you see that that's a kind of like a limited. Maybe this is not really help uh, answering or satisfying your 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 curiosity uh, per se. That's but that's really all we can say. I think that's that that's really what. Uh, the legitimate uh, paleontological answer is that we all we can say is that there seems to have been some kind of uh, increase in the olfactory capabilities in mammal ancestors uh, 200 million years ago. <laughs> That's all we can say. If you assume, if by the way, if you assume that the 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 amount of uh, neural neuronal uh, neural uh, tissue uh, is a good Estimate is a good uh, cor uh, correlation with the with the performance is supposed to be taking. Hey, quick question. Hey, Cecil, uh, um, Katerina, I don't remember if it was in this room um, or if it was in a quantum room. When, did we have the room in here with the guy that was doing the microbiome and the uh, AI in the microbiome? Was that here or another room? Yeah, yeah, I was here, but um, yeah, I don't think that microbiome data from paleontology, unless you find some. No, uh, no, no, it's more, it's 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 more, it's more about the approach that they took, like the AI. Like I'm just, cu I'm curious to know, like in, in, in uh, you know, and basically in his studies in this field, how are they using, um, like. Uh, Ricardo, are you guys use are you guys starting to use you know any kind of artificial intelligence algorithms loading up the data and start to look at it you know in the sense mm -hmm. just because you know that's been very interesting. The only stuff that I that I've seen uh, really it's for like helping with segmentation. That is to say, like uh, okay, we we do scan these fossils in like computer tomography machines, like in your regular CT scans when you break your bone, you just go to a medical facility and you scan the bone and you see where the fracture is we use the same thing just like on steroids basically we go to the synchrotron which is like a, a you know an extremely powerful uh, uh ct machine uh or we have lab uh, computer tomography machines which are, are just not as great but uh, they do a lot of good stuff as well uh so yeah uh, so when you scan a specimen you can basically teach the algorithm to um, uh, learn how to separate bone and 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 rock. Uh, so that's the the only really kind of applications of AI I've seen to paleontology. And there's a software called uh, Dragonfly that that does that. But I've never tried uh, it before. I prefer it still to rely uh, on, on on my own senses in terms of like uh, separating these these bonds because it's really tricky. Uh, it, it's really tricky. Yeah. Yeah, I think you have to have a lot of data, right? And you probably don't have too many samples. Uh, like the sample size is probably not you know in the amount that it would make sense the amount of uh, the amount of data generated by a computer tomography machine is is really huge 
the problem is uh, to actually be be able to see the sutures between the bones because they are often co-ossified the bones you have to have uh, oftentimes some kind of like uh, a priori knowledge of where the 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 the, the sutures are going to be uh, and then there's like uh, fractures you know how can you really teach uh, a machine to separate what a fracture is and then what a suture is it's really it's really tricky but i i think uh, i've seen people successfully using uh, ai to uh, to to separate the bones it's not so much about the amount of data it's about really the quality of the data that you have or, or that computer tomography machines can generate from fossils if you would do it with like extend bones that are not deformed then that's like easy any uh i bet if you put it in dragonfly you can separate easily the bones yeah but i've never seen any other kinds of applications of ai to paleontology no the only thing i recently read was um you know like not paleontology it was archaeology to kind of go through satellite data and like find spots where you could maybe find ah something. yes mm -hmm. like, yeah that was recently what i found but other than that you know but i'm not an expert so who cares like no yeah i've seen, I've seen that too uh, for paleo uh, now that, that that you're talking about it not sure if it was if it was really ai but yeah maybe it was but i've seen i've seen something uh like that to like um first uh yeah to just kind of like have a, an idea of where to go really uh to find the anything of interest i don't yeah, think i caught this earlier which was oh just real quick what was well how did you get into like how did you pinpoint um this part of the ear to use as a marker to study was that something that was there before or like how, how did that idea come 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 to you or the thought or the, the process like it, it's, a, it's a very very niche little it, it, even down to the, <laughs> to the specific bone right like i wonder how, how did you how'd you get there uh so i mean as soon as paleontologists got a, got their hands on a on a ct machine they of course they threw as many fossils as they can to the ct machine and they start to explore basically new parts of the anatomy that were not well known i i guess i was kind of like caught in that wave uh so the one of the easy things to actually segment so when i say segment is like to extract from from the scan um because a scan is like a series of slices and you say segment because uh, each slice is like a segment and you extract that segment from 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 the overall scan so uh, one of the first things that the paleontologists started to segment was the inner ear because that was kind of like easy to see in this in the scans because you know it's basically you have bone and then you have the 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 inner ear is like there's no bone so it's the density contrast is really big so you can see that uh, quite clearly uh so that was like one of the first things that people started to 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 segment and to make uh, renders in 3d um so i was kind of like caught in that wave uh, and what i and when i started to accumulate data on 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 
on this, I started to notice like really some uh, striking differences between the, the morphology of the inner ear in, in uh, these mammal ancestors that we were finding in Mozambique comparing to mammals. And these mammal ancestors had more like of a reptilian uh, shape and size compared to mammals. Mammals have like very, if, if you show me a, a ear of any, any mammal, I can tell you immediately, this is going to be a mammal, this is going to be a bird or whatever, because the morphology is very, it's very uh, specific for each one of the groups. But the morphology for mammals, it's really unique. It's like the, the canals, they are called semicircular. Uh, they are really circular. In mammals, they are uh, they are really thin and they are really small, comparatively speaking, when you scale for the body mass. Okay, when you look at uh, mammal ancestors, and when I started to look at this stuff, I started to see that the, the size of the inner ears were really large, uh, much much thicker, comparatively speaking, to those of mammals, and um, and eccentric. They were like more like of ellipsoids than really uh, circles, although the name uh, semicircular canals, despite the name of semicircular canals. So I was like, I was started to wonder why, why was there this difference? So eventually I started to talk to a, to a, a colleague, a now friend, friend of mine, who is also the first author of the paper, uh, Roman David, Who's uh, who's a, a French guy working in um, uh, in uh, in in year in in paleontology as well, and we started to discuss and really wonder what what these differences uh, uh, were. And he had more like of uh, uh, um, uh, how do you say a more technical approach to this. And he started to to say, hey, you know, have you noticed that at these equations, if you flip around a few things, uh, uh, maybe these differences that we are seeing have to have some uh, impact on on the this the semicircular uh, duct um, biomechanics. And uh, yeah, we started. We then started to explore uh, this. And uh, that's when, when the idea came uh, about using the, the measurements and these equations that govern uh, the biomechanics of the, the semicircular canals to use it as a proxy for temperature because we, we noticed that, that uh, temperature was within these equations. So it would, it's like getting a thermometer without a, a thermometer. It, uh, so, yeah. We 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 explored that idea further by looking at the fossils, by looking at the extant mammals, and so on, uh, to to start um, working this out. So and it worked. <laughs> that's that's why it worked. Uh, resulted in this paper. So last question is: um, which which mammals, like which species in the mammals, are have the most sophisticated hearing and maybe what was most interesting to you, like, you know, like, you know, you're probably doing studies like, wow, this is very unique and different and interesting, just, you know, interesting information, I guess. What's, what's, which one has the most sophisticated, wide range or whatever um, species that you've seen and, and whatever other, like, what's the most kind of interesting uh, thing that popped out in your, in your studies of the, thus far around mammals and ears? 
Mm, you know, uh, not I cannot speak so much for the hearing because what really the vestibular oh, right the, the vestibular organ or rather the inner ear detects two things. Although it's called the ear, it detects two things. It detects the sounds. That's the cochlear system. That's that coiled stuff that uh, in in the part of uh, like it's the ventral part of the the inner ear system. The dorsal part of the inner system is the the is the vestibular organ which detects angular accelerations of the head okay there's you know there's not so much sophistication that goes into that part to be honest uh because it's it's really just uh, it's this as uh, i mean the best sophistication that you have is the same as as the locomotion uh, that you are dealing with uh, is highest okay so the faster the animal, the more sensitive your your system needs to be um, to be optimized for that for that uh, speed and for those uh, movements, right? So it, it there's it's not so much of a sophistication. It's like nobody's talking about the the accelerators on your cell phone because your cell phone has accelerators as well, because it's like the Probably the less interesting thing about your cell phone is like uh, when you rotate it, it, it turns on the lights, right? It's like, so there's no much sophistication that can go into that. What something that uh, though surprised me when we were dealing with this is the fact that there are ectothermic, so cold-blooded mammals like uh, the naked mole rat. I, I don't know if you guys uh, ever heard of this creature. It's not so much related to the inner ear system, but it's something that really shocked me. The na naked, the naked, what is that called? I'll, I'll, put it, I'll put up a link. Naked mole what? Uh, it's, the mo it's the ugliest uh, creature ever. It's the naked mole rat. Okay, okay, the ugliest creature ever? Hold on, I gotta look that up. No, no, you you gotta look at it, <laughs> and please, please confirm if it is not ugly. It's kind of cute. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah, so something mole rat. Wait, which what was the first word? It's naked, naked, naked literally as rat. as someone without clothes. Got it. Seem like dangerous search terms to me. <laughs> it's a nut like to search for it. Yeah. So yes, the naked mole rat is actually a rare example of an ectothermic, um, an ectothermic uh, mammal. So mammals have been a warm-blooded. Uh, we found uh, since two uh, 233 million years ago. And there's an extant mammal that's like against all odds, it's actually ectothermic. Uh, so they they do produce uh, some internal heat, but the internal heat still, uh, uh, it's not enough to make it correlate uh, vastly with, um, with the external uh, temperature. So if you put if you put a naked mole rat outside of its burrows, it's likely to die. So yeah, that that was that kind of really surprised me uh, that that evolution sometimes can be 
not so reversible, but uh, um, so dynamic because, as I said, uh, the naked mole rat still can produce its its own uh, internal body temperature. Uh, for example, the naked mole rat has uh, BAT, so that's uh, brown adipose tissue, and brown adipose tissue is just an adipose tissue that its entirely function, its entire function is to produce uh, heat to the animal. Um, uh, but still not in enough uh, quantities to to make it uh, to to make it uh, vary its temperature um, strongly with the environment, just as any any good old lizard or turtle or or something of that sort. So yeah, that that's one of the example. Uh, and another example is Xerospermophilus. Uh, that's kind of like just like a random squirrel that's apparently able to fluctuate its uh, its body temperature as well. I was really surprised to know that there was there were still in the in the mammal uh, uh, realm so uh, these kind of creatures that can vary uh, vary their their body temperature immensely. So yeah, that was quite interesting. When you say uh, mammals have been uh, endothermic since, does that mean there was a time when mammals were ectothermic? Uh, uh, that's a that's a good question. Yeah, that's actually a little bit of a mistake that I did there. No, mammals have always been endothermic. Uh, it's uh, in the clade of mammalia morpha, so preceding the origination of mammals that it's calibrated at 233 million years uh, ago uh, that uh, became um, uh, that became endotherm. So everything uh, synapsid non-mammaliomorph is uh, ectothermic, right? So the, all these animals preceding, so that they, they are in the evolutionary lineage of, of mammals, but they are not mammals yet. They are, uh, they are they are synapsid non-mammaliomorphs. All these animals were ectotherm, yes. So we and had ectothermic ancestors, indeed. Cold-blooded ancestors. And uh, can you tell us more about the species uh, fossil that you discovered and what role does it play in your correlation between the... Uh, vestibular uh, viscosity and, you know, the difference between... The one, the, I, the one I found in Mozambique? Yeah. Okay, yeah. The, so that's that belongs to a very well-known group of, uh, of uh, mammal ancestors. Oh, I mean, we don't really use the term... In, in, in paleontology, we don't really use the term uh, mammal ancestors. We just use synapsids because that's the clay that includes mammals. And includes all these other creatures uh, that are in the mammalian lineage, and it's just really the more, the better term to use. It's it's more phylogenetically comprehensive, basically. Uh, so uh, this Niacidon uh, fumukazi that we found belongs to a group of synapsids called uh, Dicynodons. Okay. And uh, these dicynodonts we found, uh, and their eating ear clear reveal reveals that they are uh, ectothermic. Every single one uh, of the dicynodonts uh, that we found give a signal that they they were all uh, uh, ectothermic. 
according to, to our metric. So yes, all these animals uh, around this time, so Dicenodonts, they lived uh, from about 260 something million years ago to about 230. And during their existence, they were, they have always been ectothermic. And then uh, what, what's the discovery, what's the difference in the one that you discovered? What's the, uh, what makes it different? It's not, it's not, I mean, our paper is not so much about uh, a particular discovery. It's about uh, the general evolution of, of the group, basically. Uh, so we find, I mean, our fossil in, in, in the, the one we find in Mozambique, just fits perfectly the pattern of all other dicynodonts that have ever been found in the world, okay? In Zambia, in, so in South Africa, in, in Russia. Uh, so it fits perfectly uh, that one. That, I mean, I just mentioned that one because that was kind of like one of the fossils that started making me think about this stuff, uh, basically. Because we scanned that one and uh, it had a nice in ear. It had, it had everything preserved. We, we isolated every single bone of it, but it just fits the pattern as expected. No no crazy things going on with Nyasadon in Mozambique. <laughs> okay, and just one more quick question. Uh, um, is there any correlation between the speed of movement of, a, of an animal and the vestibular uh, fluid viscosity? That's actually one of the really interesting uh, phylogenetic generalized least squares uh, correlations that we did in our, in our, I mean, that's a fancy word to say, a phylogenetically corrected uh, uh, correlation. Um, uh, that we found that uh, the semicircular duct function does correlate with maximum anaerobic speed. That is to say the maximum speed that an animal can do for a short burst of time. Uh, so yes, uh, there is there is correlation uh, of of both metrics of semicircular duct function. So uh, upper corner frequency, both uh, re relevant uh, metrics, upper corner frequency and uh, sensitivity of the um, of the semicircular duct function with uh, maximum anaerobic speeds. And and for that matter, we also uh, compile the data for uh maximum aerobic speeds and uh, we do find a correlation with that too interesting so uh, in other ways in other way uh, yeah the the if you go to the supplements of the of the paper the, this might be interesting for for uh the person I, i'm sorry i did not uh, memorize the, the name uh, that was working on the on the cochlear stuff as well but um, uh, yeah, did, did, we, we did explore this uh, a lot in, in the paper. Yeah, thank you for um, answering those questions. I, I, my kids will run into the car in a few minutes. I will be locked in a few minutes, but wanted to ask a question more related to, you know, the Institute, the lab you built, because I know there are a lot of people here uh, and on Clubhouse that kind of, you know, plan or do similar stuff. If it's an institute or, you know, a, a research company and so on, like, 
what is the advice you can give people that want to build something like this in a very remote area with mm -hmm. no budgets? Like, like how how did it work? Like, how did you succeed? And what's the advice you, you could give people? Uh, find the right person to work with you. That's that's really the only the only good advice I can work I can give. Uh, because if you don't uh, we we were lucky enough to to when i started to go to mozambique to and and starting this project uh there was this guy uh, called Luis costa jr unfortunately he he died uh, on a car crash um a few years ago and and he was amazing he was just a facilitator he he just made everything easy in in like a country that was not ours And he saw the potential of of the project, and 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 uh, and now we are kind of like collecting the fruits of of uh, of this effort. And it was really a bilateral collaboration. It, these things cannot be done, you know, just by my strong will or whatever. These things need to be to be done with it, with a team of committed people that see the potential and can really raise the resources for something to happen, because otherwise it, it, it's just It, it just like it would feel like uh, swimming against against the current. So the, the key is people uh, find the right person uh, and 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 uh, and really work those uh, those relationships. I think I think that's what really matters. I would say. Yeah, thank you for that insight. That's uh, that's really interesting. Um, um, yeah, it's really an important insight. Um, and um, so, yeah, I would say congratulations for everything you did. And we wish you all the best, all the luck, all the funding, and that you know you continue to to have a lot of fruitful work and have a lot of mm -hmm. students and um yeah um i think you know um it's really it's really amazing what you're doing what you did and uh yeah we're very honored to have had you here and um i i wish you all i think we all wish you all the best for the future and maybe you come back one day Uh, maybe mm -hmm. also with a student or so to talk about okay. uh, new or further projects further along in the future. Thank yes. you. Thank you so much for for having me and and letting me speak for so long. And I'm sorry for the for the noise. Oh yeah. <laughs> I oh. bet you had some. You heard some uh, some heavy music. <laughs> oh, don't worry. Don't it's supposed to be informal and. Uh, No, like, uh, thank you for... for yeah, and, and, and feel free to uh, invite me. This was fun. Uh, honestly, I enjoyed it. Uh, of course, I mean, uh, letting a scientist or a paleontologist speak about its work, uh, that, yeah, we don't, we want uh, no more than that, honestly. So it, it's a lot of fun. I always love to, to talk about uh, uh, what we do and our discovery. So it's, 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 it's fun. Uh, Thank you for listening to, to me and, and for all the questions. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, come back anytime. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you. Okay.
Have a good weekend. Enjoy Portugal. I miss it so much. Okay. Tchau, tchau. Tchau. And thanks everyone for coming uh, and for discussing and commenting and all the questions. And enjoy your weekend. Happy Friday. And um, yeah, thank you. Uh, we have more. Oh, right. Uh, some advertisement. Uh, we have more rooms like this uh, next week again. Uh, we will have uh, Dr. Lee here. Uh, we'll talk about first solid state light driven nan nanomotors. It will be really interesting nanotechnology um, research that he will share with us. Then on Tuesday, Dr. Lafay will talk about Hemocyte cell type discovery and leukemia. Uh, it's really, um, he made really breakthroughs in uh, leukemia research. And um, on Wednesday, we will have an AI room that diagnoses dementia accurately and earlier on. And Thursday, uh, an ETA2 that will be able to continuously um, measure blood pressure. Uh, which is like one of the most important data points to uh, for health, like long-term health is blood pressure monitoring around the clock. And yeah, as we learned in the sleeping room, really around the clock and not just acutely at some time points during the day, also at night. So this ETA2 could be, you know, the, the technology of the future that we will need. And um, yeah, and... Okay, so here you're all back soon. Thanks for coming and um, enjoy your weekend. Thanks, everyone. And close the room in three, two, one. Bye, everyone. Bye, thanks. Thank you.